You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. You're listening to Leaders and Legends. This is Robert Vane. Leaders and Legends is presented by Veteran Strategies Incorporated and sponsored by the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana. Our guest today is David Frick, former Deputy Mayor for William Hudnut and the man, according to P.E. McAllister and according to Mark Miles, who is responsible for the Indianapolis Colts. So, Mr. Frick, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Are you from Indianapolis originally? I went to high school in Indianapolis, but I really grew up near Fort Wayne. Which high school did you go to? Southport High School. I'm a South Sider, which is relatively rare. I think that is relatively rare. That's right. Did uh, uh, How did that shape your worldview as opposed to probably a lot of the people you worked with as your career grew were from Northside or different places? Well, I was... Uh, Blessed. I grew up in Northeast Indiana, as I mentioned, and I. It was a typical farming community. I, my grandparents' farms, where I spent most of my time growing up, and when I came to the big city of Indianapolis, it was a, a little bit of an eye-opening experience um, to go from a town of three thousand people to th- three quarters of a million people. <laughs> was, uh, was uh, gave me a very different perspective on what it's like to live and work. Uh, Southport High School at the time was there wasn't a lot of development down on the south sure. side. The real development impetus was always to the north and the northeast. Uh, yet I was very comfortable growing going to high school at Southport. We had life really revolved around the schools back then, unlike today. Uh, we would go to dances around at the school. There would be all the parties at the school, all different kinds of clubs at the school that you would be, have an opportunity to be involved. May I ask what year you graduated? 1962. And so Perry Meridian was 15 years in the future. And so everybody was going. Everybody in the South Side. And, and if you talk to the long-term Southsiders, they'll tell you that it probably was a mistake to create Perry Meridian, that there was projections on growth that really never materialized. And there was clearly room to have one little bit larger high school as opposed to two high schools, both of which were not quite as big as they needed to be. From Southport, you attended IU, is that correct? That is correct, uh, from 1962 through 1966. Tell me about going to law school at Harvard. The Southport to Harvard pipeline, I can only imagine, was not very big. Relatively Uh, rare, I would say. (laughs) What is it about Harvard that attracted you? Well, if you can get into Harvard legitimately, 
<laughs> That's a good point these days. Correct. Legitimately. It's uh, quite an eye-opening experience. I had the blessings of being married when I went to Harvard. So I had a spouse who was very supportive of the incredibly long hours I put in. How long but, have you been married? We've been married 54 years. For those of you who are wondering why there's silence, Mr. Frick is looking for confirmation from his <laughs> wife, who's <laughs> giving him the thumbs up. <laughs> Did you meet anyone famous when you were at Harvard? Oh, sure. They, it's one of the advantages of going to Harvard or Yale or any of the schools along the East Coast is that there are people from very important families who have fathers or mothers who had were successful in the business arena, the not-for-profit arena, or the political arena. And so you have an opportunity to interact and get to know, uh, at one time, maybe a half dozen of my uh, law school classmates who had gone on to legal careers but or in politics, uh, or worked for the Defense Department, worked for, worked for the White House, so... Any of your, when did you graduate from law school? 1969. Any of your friends or acquaintances caught up in Watergate? No, but one almost did. Had the opportunity to, to work for uh, Haldeman and in the executive office. And fortunately, it didn't come, didn't materialize. Did you take classes with any future Supreme Court justices or any other names? Yeah, that we'd Stephen Breyer, who's on the Supreme Court now. So Justice Breyer, appointed yeah. by Bill Clinton, I believe. I think that's correct. And I think he is the only one. The current Supreme Court has six people who are graduates of Harvard on, exactly. on the Supreme Court. Steve, Dr. Uh, Justice Breyer was the only one I was exposed to. Do you see folks like that when you go back? I mean, I'm trying to think of anyone else I know prominent in Indiana, went to Harvard. Luke Kinley would be the one that I Luke would think Luke and I of. overlapped. So you knew Luke? I didn't know him, but he was at the business school at the time I was at the law school, or maybe he was a year or two after when he came to the law school. Because I know he also served in the military, yes. as I recall. So you leave Harvard. What's your next step? How'd you get back to Indianapolis? Well, it's kind of a convoluted way to get back to Indianapolis. Um, I, upon graduation, I had a commission to go into the Army in the JAG Corps. And if you remember, that was the height of the Vietnam Correct. controversy. And so I was thinking only in terms of a limited engagement uh, lo and behold, the Army decided they didn't need any more lawyers, and which didn't break my heart, except I was going to be subject to a draft then. And I was fortunate that my number in the draft wasn't called. Do you remember your draft number? No, but it was pretty high. I do remember that. <laughs> and so, because uh, I would have enjoyed serving in the military as a lawyer. It would have been great training ground for me. I didn't particularly want to be a grunt soldier. That's understandable. Uh, That's those understandable. guys, uh, what they faced is just incredible. And but you came back to Indianapolis. Well, there was a, an interim step. I had the opportunity. I interviewed the large firms in Boston, New York, and Chicago, and ended up going to work for a large firm, Mayor Brown and Platt, in Chicago. 
And after a year, year and a half there, they asked me to move to Washington, D.C., along with a, a, a partner, and we recruited some young lawyers to join the office there and to set up an office for Mayor Brown in Washington, D.C. And that's where I really had, had developed an interest in politics. Is the Harvard degree, I mean, do they, obviously I'm, I'm unaware, does the Harvard degree just, do they come running? I mean, was it like, once you graduate from here, don't worry about a job, these law firms are going to be all over you, you're just going to have your pick? I, I think it does open a lot of doors, um, but most of my classmates deserve to have doors open. They were very talented people. And people have often asked me, what is it that struck you the most about your Harvard experience? It was the incredible brilliance of my classmates. And I've been blessed with, I think, a pretty good mind. But I realized that no, how, regardless of how hard I worked, I could never compete intellectually with some of my classmates and some of my professors. They were just very, very brilliant people. Was there the sense then, and then we'll move on, Harvard Ivy League schools in general take a beating these days for what's called grade inflation. Everyone gets an A. Was that your experience? Well, the law school was not that way. If I graduated with honors, and there was a pretty small group of people who got the honors, graduated with honors. Uh, I did experience it in the undergraduate school. I taught at Harvard College when I was in law school. I taught in the uh, course in expository writing. Mm -hmm. And there I I noticed there's a lot of pressure for because of the professors worrying about some of the students. If they flunked out, there was great inflation that was going on. Now, I don't know how long it continued, but the, there were very, in my class, there were very few students who didn't get a good grade because that was the way we were expected to grade. How much was your college experience like the movie Animal House? It was about the same decade, around the same time period. Well, that was a, a classic I'm movie. You've Everybody, seen the movie. oh, <laughs> 20 or 30 times I, <laughs> I saw the movie. But that was not my experience. Um, my family couldn't help me get go to school. And so I had to collect scholarships and I had to work uh, when I was a student. Um, I started out washing pots and pans in a fraternity house and moved up to be a waiter and then moved up to be a breakfast cook. So I was working 20 or 25 hours a week as an undergraduate. And, and I was fortunate I met my current wife my freshman year and we were not big in the party scene. So uh, I Animal House couldn't be further from my experience. <laughs> Everybody I know who's gone to Bloomington would go back there tomorrow. They just, everyone raves about the experience. Would you put yourself in that category? I do. Uh, it was a great place to develop a relationship with faculty members. I had a couple of faculty members who took a in very intense interest in me. Uh, one was James Kessler, who was known for his work uh in analyzing the decision-making process in government. And the other one was Charles Heinemann, who was a classic political scientist known for years and years. And I had 
worked en- enough and cl- took a pretty heavy load in addition to working full time. And so by my senior year, I didn't need any credits and I couldn't leave school. Um, or excuse me, let me rephrase that. I, I had an opportunity to study uh, as an independent study with sure, Dr. Yeah. Dr. Heinemann because I had finished all my coursework and was out of taking classes. And I, and I thoroughly enjoyed and developed a lot of research papers with working with him. And so I had a, a real, for the first time in my life, exposure to a very brilliant person developing a work product that I could make a small contribution, realizing that the real work and intellectual capacity came from that professor. Did you know, I mean, speaking of famous people, I guess, they don't all go to Harvard. Did you meet any people down in Bloomington who you would later work with there in Indianapolis? Jim Morris, Ed Tracy, Jim Kittle, Harry Gonzo. There's a lot of good people. You're mentioning people that I know know well from my experience. I'll just give you a couple of vignettes. Uh, Jim Kittle was, went to Pike High School, and I went to Southport High School. And we both went to Indiana Boys State, which was an American Legion program to teach young leaders. And uh, I ran for governor. Uh, I, w- I was involved in Southport High School in a variety of community activities, sure. was student, student council president at Southport. And uh, Kittle was my campaign manager. <laughs> and I got thoroughly crushed in the election. <laughs> and I tell everybody I had a very poor campaign manager. <laughs> and Kittle's retort has been for years, I had, an in, I had to deal with an incompetent politician <laughs> as a candidate. So when he took over state party, when he became chairman in 2001, 2002, did you think it was the doom of the Indiana Republican Party? Yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> But Jim really did a nice job. Terrific, actually, terrific. And the really important one, though, is Jim Morris. Uh, Jim and I got to know one another on IU's campus. And as we, I'll go back and give, tell you how I got to Indianapolis, it's kind of a long, convoluted way of getting back. But that's where I developed a friendship with Jim. And uh, and then there were a variety of other people who who, when you went to IU, you had doors open for you in Indiana politics. Sure. But the relationship with Jim was one that I've treasured over the years because he basically convinced me to come back to Indianapolis. Was he and, chief of staff to Mayor Luger at the time? Yeah, he was. And uh, there's a way I got to know Dick Luger is Jim Morris and I were at some cocktail function in, in Washington, D.C., and he was out there with Dick Luger, and I was went to this cocktail party, and we, our, we, our paths crossed. And he said, "I want you to meet somebody." And I didn't. He said, "I'm not going to tell you who it is, but come to breakfast the next morning." And it was at the Madison Hotel in Washington D.C. And it was Dick Luger, and that would have. I was so impressed with Luger, and we had a very engaging conversation, and. Luger said, young man, you you need to come home. What year would this have been? Roughly? That would have been 1971, probably seven, late 70, early 71, 71. And it caused me to start thinking seriously about, about coming back to Indianapolis. And fortunately, uh, Jim's reconnection with him 
brought me back here. And so I've always been indebted to Jim for giving me, convincing me to come back. Well, I mean, he's, Mr. Morris is going to be on this podcast. He's been very kind to me. And I mean, Jim Morris's career is modern Indianapolis. And those are one of the things I want to talk to him about. You're listening to Leaders and Legends, presented by Veteran Strategies and sponsored by the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana. Our guest today is David Frick, graduate of Harvard Law School, former deputy mayor for William Hudnut. 75, uh, Richard Luger decides he cannot run for a third term, so uh, his time as mayor ends, and this fellow named Bill Hudnut decides to run for mayor. Hudnut was elected to Congress in 72, defeating Andy Jacobs, and then lost in 1974 to Andy Jacobs in the rematch. How well did you know Mayor Hudnut, Bill Hudnut? Well, I, I got to Before know him. Before he became mayor, I guess. Yeah, I was going to say, I really got to know Bill in his congressional campaign. Uh, I had just moved back here from Washington, D.C., and he... Uh, I guess I can't quite recall how we made contact with one another, but we hit it off. And so I worked on the issue side of his that campaign, wrote speeches, press releases, developed policy statements, and uh, became very, very fond of Bill. And that was a major upset when he beat Andy Jacobs. Two years later, the people in Indianapolis wanted him back to come home. <laughs> Watergate didn't help. Well, that was because Luger lost a bye in a whisker, even despite Watergate. He came close and then Luger wins election to the Senate in 76. Against Harkey. Mm-hmm. No, it was uh, it was in that you could tell it in the people's eyes when they I would stop in polling places and people had made up their mind. They were not going to tolerate Watergate criminals. And so they uh, they had a mission They and it resulted in. Andy Jacobs being reelected. The good news is that Bill Hudnut and Andy Jacobs developed a very close relationship. If you study their campaign, there wasn't negative talk on the part of either one of them. Well, before we started recording today, I relayed a story that Andy Jacobs told me at lunch. I can't remember if he, before one of their debates, whether Hudnut picked Andy up or Andy picked Hudnut up and they rode together where they were going to debate each other. Could you imagine that these days? No, I mean, it's just, it was a different era with different people. And unfortunately, many of the political leaders we have today couldn't do that. Well, one of our podcasts previous with with John Mutz and Louis Mayhern, they had a terrific friendship that lasts to this day. It was an amazing discussion about just working together, working together. This is kind of jumping ahead, but if there's a secret to the success of it, those days in Indianapolis, it was people worked together. They didn't care what party label was attached. And there were many Democrats who helped carry the Hudnut platform and do things to re- revitalize our city. Uh, it wasn't a labor issue or it wasn't a corporate issue. People just worked together. And that's what's been lost. The concept of compromise and you no longer hear people talk about it. You're listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated and sponsored by the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana. We're here with David Frick. In 1975, Bill Hudnut is elected mayor, beats Bob Welch. 
When did you start working for him? Not until 1976. I'll come back to that in a second. The, uh, Bill helped, asked me to help the tra- develop the transition plan from uh, Luger to uh, Bill Hudnut. And he wanted me to come to be part of his administration, and I wasn't anxious to do that. But as I was working on the transition itself, I caught the bug mm-hmm. and uh, agreed to come in and to work for him. And it's probably the best decision I've ever made, other than when I, my wife and I got married. <laughs> <laughs> you came in at a time on the cusp of s- several significant events almost water, certainly one or two of them, watershed events in the city's history. So let me kind of ask you about them very quickly. If I have my dates correct, it's July of 1977, the Pacers telethon. What was that like? I remember the Pacers, and I was born in 67. I can remember the Pacers and the ABA a little bit. I remember the telethon really, really well. But the notion of a telethon to save an NBA franchise. I don't know if it's been done before or since. <laughs> it was a unique experience. Uh, Hudnut asked me to, to deal a lot with a lot of my time on economic development issues. Now, I had some of the departments of government reported up to me, and others r- reported to Joe Slash or Tom Hasbrook before Joe. Um, but Bill really said, I want you to help develop this economic development strategy. And so that at that time, it meant working with the Pacers. The Pacers were in the old ABA. Uh, they were one of four teams that were admitted into the NBA. But the <clears throat> NBA extracted an incredible pain for, the, for those four, four franchises coming into the NBA. Denied them. Fee and no had TV a huge revenue fee and no TV revenue. And so every year they would sell their season tickets, use the money immediately to pay off all the bills they'd run up for the prior year, and then struggle to figure out how they could operate for another year. And so after a couple of years of being exposed to that, and they really were going to be clo- moving out of town. Yeah. Uh, had we not done some form of raising the number of season ticket sales. And and so that was the way, something that was proposed. I can't remember whether it was Bobby Leonard or his wife, but somebody proposed the idea. Mayor Hudnut was an active participant. Oh, we, he did, just didn't stand aside and say, everybody do this. He was intimately involved. Very much so. And we, uh, we pulled it off. I, there was a number we set for the number of season tickets that we had to sell. I think it was more of a goal than an actual requirement. 8,000? Yeah, I think it was around 8,000. And, and they, we did it. And uh, Nancy Leonard really, Bobby's wife, did a wonderful job putting that together. Six months after the Pacers telethon, recall what hit Indianapolis? It's called a blizzard. <laughs> the blizzard of 78 hit in January. I was, I don't know if I was third grade, fourth grade. What I remember about it, we ask you from your perch on 25. It's funny because you and I had the exact same office. Oh, really? On the 25th floor, yes. And that is, 
It was the only time they closed school for two days at one. Like schools closed this day and the next day. You don't even have to ask. Like it was so bad that they closed school for two days in a row at the same time. That's what I remember about it. I also remember Hudnut in the racers. So this is your opportunity to take credit for Bill Hudnut wearing the racers cap as he reassures the city that everything's going to be okay. Well, there are two or three stories coming out of that experience. Uh, Dan and I went to the IRT that night. But earlier that day, Hudnut had airplane tickets to fly to Washington, D.C. Or, excuse me, it was the next day after the, when I, Dan and I went to the IRT. And he was scheduled to fly to his first state dinner. And he and his wife were really looking forward to that. And uh, unfortunately... I had, was the bearer of the news, Bill, you can't go. You, we got a blizzard. We didn't know it was a blizzard. We just knew that there was a lot of snow coming. And you can't be caught out of town. And the reason we said that is because earlier he was in San Francisco when we had an ice storm and got a lot of heat for, not, for running around cr- across the country when he should be home worrying about moving sure. the snow and and he got very irritated, irritated with me, threatened to fire me. If I, but the, I had the tickets, and I wouldn't give him the tickets. <laughs> you had the actual plane tickets? I had the you plane tickets. And, and I'm embellishing a little bit, but he, he realized it was a thing to do to stay here. So when the snow turned into a blizzard, he was in a unique position to take advantage of it politically. Now, we... Uh, Joe Slash and I were focused on getting, dealing with the emergencies. I mean, think about the number of people who were on medicines. How do they get their medicine? Or people that were on therapies. How do they get to take their therapies? Because the city was totally closed down. We even pulled all the police officers in from the, from the streets. And we didn't have any crime, interestingly enough. <laughs> I guess even thieves knew it's not wasn't a very good idea to go outside. But how Bill got the racer hat was it was kind of an interesting story. Uh, like I said, Joe Slash and I were focused on just getting things moving again. Bill w- was playing a very important role, and that was a reassurance role. And so he said, "You know, I'm going to go out." And ride with the DOT drivers, and and Slash and I applauded that to get him out of our hair because there's <laughs> important things to do. But he and he's dressed, six foot five, six foot six, so this hat makes him almost six foot ten, six foot nine, and uh, and uh, people wanted reassurance that we're going to get through it. And Bill was very good at communicating that. And the way he did it was amazing. He he wore the same sweater. He wore the same cap. Now, people would see the same thing day, for day after day, and they think, well, he's he's uh, spending all of his time here, doesn't even have time to go home, change clothes. <laughs> but he did go home and change clothes, <laughs> but put the same ones back on. <laughs> I can feel your pain on the uh, tickets, uh, Remember, it was 2009 Final Four. Ballard gets mugged. Do you remember that? We were there. We were there up in Detroit. I'm the one who convinced him not to take security. (laughs) 
<laughs> I said, nobody knows who the hell you are up there. You don't need to take security. It's just a waste of taxpayer money. You'll be in and out. Don't worry about it. And it was a bit of a fight. And then I'm still convinced to this day it was staged. He was never actually mugged. <laughs> well, Mayor, if you're listening, I, I just don't, I believe it's staged. Well, we knew about it because what happened was the police officers on the Saturday game, the police officers in Detroit were mad about something. And so they quit directing traffic. And there was this incredible, incredible tie-up of nobody could move who was in a car. Ann and I were... Uh, were up there because I was involved with the NCA and the Final Fours. And we finally gave up and got off the bus and to walk back to the hotel. And it was scary. After we had done that, we thought, we're fools. Because <laughs> we walked right through where Ballard uh, was walking when he, he got mugged. Yeah, I got I got some I told you show, so it was pretty bad. Actually, maybe last to this day because I never should listen to you on anything, especially <laughs> security for the Detroit final four. You were also in the mayor's office as we move on when the Richard Hall, Tony Caritzis incident happened. Actually, Richard Hall has agreed to come on the leaders and legends podcast. And I'm looking forward to that. Cause I can remember that as a kid, mostly because of the profanity from Caritzis, which was aired on live television, but just the whole event. What was that like when you were, trying to figure out or help figure out how to save this man's life. Cause that was ultimately the goal. Yeah. I, I think it, we turned the, we listened to the professionals and, and what to do with the, the emergency. And so the police department was heavily involved. Fred Heckman, uh, radio announcer or newsman was heavily involved, but, uh, the, the pros knew what they were doing and they gave the, the advice, but it was weird to see a guy with a shotgun with tape to his neck and walking around in the downtown. Indianapolis in the seventies was despite all the, I want to say miraculous work of the Luger administration with Unigov and building the market square arena downtown. Uh, it was really its formative years. And then mayor Hudnut, along with others, of course, but ultimately it was his decision decided to do something that remains almost a focal point of, of our history in an unprecedented event, I think, in modern history, municipal history, and that is build an NFL-ready stadium when the city has no NFL team. You were involved from... Alpha to Omega and everything and during that time period. Was that his idea that he brought to others or did others bring that idea to him and then he championed it? I think it was a combination of both. Uh, there's a story on how he ended up with an NFL franchise that important to understand why the building was built. Uh, we, a local citizen by the name of Bob Welsh, who actually ran against Bill Hudnett uh, for mayor, had been working with the NFL trying to build support for Indianapolis as a, as a place to have an NFL expansion franchise. And Haddad had asked me to, to work with the football-focused people, including Bob Welsh. And so it became clear that we were not going to be able to get a franchise without a stadium. The, the concept Bob Welsh had was 
modernize Butler Stadium. Well, that, w- that was never going to work. Because the NFL expanded, I think, at 77. That's Seattle and Tampa Bay. But at the time that you're talking about, teams were moving from Los Angeles to St. Louis and the Raiders, probably most famously. They couldn't decide between Oakland and, <laughs> and L.A. They moved back and forth. So that uh, that threw a wrench into what we were trying to do, which was to convince the NFL to to bring an expansion franchise. We realized that if we're going to get an expansion franchise, it was going to be because we have a stadium. Now, the, the reason that it made sense to build the stadium was obviously the hope someday of getting an NFL franchise. But Hudnut had committed to developing convention and tourisms as one of the major impetuses for economic development. And that we, we needed to expand our convention center. And so it was easy to, if we could attach the stadium to the convention center, then we'd have multiple use, a couple hundred days a year. And that's really what made that project possible. Uh, people had proposed building a stadium on, uh, well, essentially where the Victory Field is now located. And that as a standalone stadium and or on the other side of White River. And I wrote a memo to Hudnut saying this doesn't work. You're only talking to NFL 12 games. you got to have something else. But by connecting the stadium to the Hoosier Dome, the Hoosier Dome to the convention center, the, the economics worked. And so then it was a political risk, not an economic risk of building something that looked like a stadium, even though it's part of the convention center. And had we not pulled off, and that just took guts on Hadut's part. Were there naysayers? Were there people in the room going, you can't be serious, Bill? Probably the leading naysayer was a guy by the name of Tom Benford, who was Mr. Community Citizen. But people like- Really? Benford? That's interesting, because he was known as such a forward strategic thinker. Yeah, he was, uh, on this one, he was not asked your- Friend P. McAllister sometime. <laughs> I will. Did the Colts get identified quickly as a possible uh, relocation franchise? The answer is no. <clears throat> Again, I was working with a group of citizens here in town who were trying to figure out how we could convince the NFL to award an expansion franchise. Unfortunately, expansion franchises were put on hold because of the mobility or movement of these franchises, existing franchises between town and the NFL trying to get control of it and being fought in court by primarily the Raiders. It's the famous Pete Rozelle, Al Davis feud. And we had been working, trying to develop a a good working relationship with the NFL. I can't tell you how many times I flew to New York and met with them on an issue or two on the design of the stadium. Some, just some reason to get in front of them. We we finally got this top staffers in the NFL to come out for events, the 500 mile race. Oh, sure. And then it's in its heyday. So you could prove that you could put on big events, the biggest in the world. And so we, we uh, were working to build that expansion franchise when we, at the Super Bowl. And I want to say it was in the 1994 Super Bowl. Uh, Tom Shine, who 
helped build a company called Logo 7 in our town, uh, heard that Bob Ursay was starting to look around for a new home for the Baltimore franchise. So the 84 Super Bowl. 84 84. Super Bowl, excuse me. And so we... He brought that to his boss, Herb Simon, or his good friend, Herb Simon, who then called Haddad and myself and and told us. And so then we reached out to the Colts and say, hey, if you're thinking about relocating, uh, we've got a brand new stadium that's almost done. And why don't you come out and take a look? And that started a, a process that took about six weeks from the time we started until they got in the moving vans and came to Indianapolis. Do you believe the Colts, let me say that differently, do you believe Baltimore would have seized the team through eminent domain? Well. Because that was the threat, and I think that was, the, that was the proximate catalyst to them calling, saying, come get us. Is that correct? That's correct. And it's interesting that you recognize that. I don't think Ursay would have moved the Colts, even though the NFL is putting a lot of pressure on him to do so, uh, had the legislature violated a promise they made to Bill Hudna, I mean, to um, to Bob Ursay, which was that we will not use eminent domain to acquire the Colts franchise. And they started a legislative process in which they suspended rules and passed in one house the bill unanimously, and then they did the same thing the next day. And Ursay picked up the paper and saw that and said, I got to get out before the Colts are seized through eminent domain. And I think Baltimore would have done that. And so they, they really forced him to, to leave. Do you think the fact that you had a Harvard law degree helped you connect with the NFL and Baltimore and the East Coast folks, whereas if you'd had a law degree from Iowa State or New Mexico State, that maybe they would have looked at you a little differently. Do you think that gave you some credibility? Oh, uh, it may have. I'm giving it to you. Yeah, so, I, I, do you want to take it? I wouldn't. No, I, I don't think. I think anybody who, would, who was a deal maker, and I was a deal maker. I knew how to put significant transactions together, both in, as a lawyer and and when I was in government. So that was the more important thing is how you try to get people to come to an agreement. And we were able to do that because Mr. Ursay relied upon his attorney, Michael Chernoff, to do a lot of the heavy lifting on terms of location. And I developed a close relationship with Mike Chernoff in this process. And there was a lot of uncertainty of on the part of our side was he really do trying to just is he trying to use us to get a better deal someplace sure and on their side will we really deliver what we're promising and i think we got through almost all those issues because mike turnoff and i just understood one another and we concluded by working together we can craft an agreement that will work for mr ursay and work for the city of indianapolis who got to call Mayor Hudnut and say they're coming. Well, there are two calls. Michael Chernoff called me and said, we got to get out of Baltimore and describe what the legislature was doing. And Bob Ursay called Bill Hudnut and said essentially the same thing. And so Michael Chernoff flew down to Indianapolis. We had some paperwork we had to get cleaned up. And then he got on a plane and flew to Baltimore. 
And uh, middle of the night, they started moving. When when you see an image of the Mayflower trucks, what does that bring back to you in terms of like the memories of the process or and how the city came together? Like whatever you need. It's like whatever you need. Don't, don't, no questions. Just tell me what you need. Well, May, the Mayflower move was one where Bill Hudnut's next door neighbor was next door neighbor was Johnny B. Smith, who was the CEO of Mayflower. And Johnny B. in one of his pontifications said, well, if you want to move the Colts to Indianapolis, I'll move them free. <laughs> and so Hudnut called him and said, guess what? You get to move them free. <laughs> and how uh, did you keep the secret? How long before the phone calls that you described took place before it got out? Well, it got out when they started pulling trucks <laughs> at the Colts headquarters. Uh, I, but I think before then, no one in Baltimore knew. And there were only a handful of us in Indianapolis who knew what was going on. In the middle of the night, uh, which is undercover darkness, you hear that used a lot, was simply a product of time. Michael Chernoff had to leave Chicago, get on the company plane, fly to Indianapolis. We had, uh, like I said, a lot of paperwork we had to clean up. And by the time we got that done, he got on the plane and flew to Baltimore. It was starting to be 8 or 9 o'clock. And so that was simply a product of of the way it unfolded because we there was no real issue of trying to sneak out in the middle of the night. It just the time worked out the way it worked out. Is it is it true or apocryphal that that Bob Ursay, the then owner of the Colts, looked at the color scheme inside the then Hoosier Dome before it became the RCA Dome and said, these are the Colts colors. Maybe this is meant to be. I, that's how I've described it. Those words have come from me. I was the person who took Bob Ursay over to the stadium. And we walked into the stadium, and Bob Ursay was never quiet. <laughs> he talked all the time, and he became very quiet. And I was puzzled. And I said, are you okay? And he said, you know, I look at the silver upper deck bench seats. I look at the white roof. I look at the the lower deck blue seats. Those are the Colts colors. It's meant to be. And we knew it. I knew at that point, it was a, simply a question of a That he document. wasn't using you yeah, as that, a bargaining chip. We could, uh, we could get this deal done. Before the, before the Colts came, the then Hoosier Dome had the world's biggest basketball game with the Olympic team coached by Bobby Knight playing some NBA players. And it had a Notre Dame Purdue college game. And I think it had like a Chicago bears, Buffalo bills, maybe preseason game. My family was one of the teams that won one of the uh, families won the lottery, the initial ticket lottery for the Colts. What was it like for you? I'm assuming you attended when you took your seat for the very first home game of the Indianapolis Colts? Well, I'm glad you emphasized Indianapolis because that's one thing we wrote in the agreement. We wanted it to be the Indianapolis Colts. Well, you're overwhelmed. I mean, it's you sit there and you, you think about how fortunate we were that it all worked out. And my wife had to pinch me more than once just to keep my attention keep me from drifting off 
because this was a very compressed period of time of six weeks from, and it really was several years if you think about when we started working on trying to attract a, not an existing team, but getting awarded a, an expansion franchise to the day that we're playing NFL football in Indianapolis. Uh, it was also a personally difficult time for me. We, uh, my daughter was, uh, was diagnosed with a ruptured appendix and she was in pretty bad shape. And so Anne, my wife, was staying with her overnight, staying with her all the time. And I would try to come by, but again, I was immersed in doing this deal and the, the deal communications occurred in a variety of locations all kind of all over the oh, United sure. States. I mean, I met Bob Ursay and Mike Chernoff at the NFL owners meeting in, in Hawaii. Uh, we met in, in Chicago. We met in uh, Indianapolis. And so all that build up and all these strings being pulled, I, I when it came time to have the CIB bless the agreement formally, I choked up. I just, I couldn't talk. I, mean, I had tears running down my my cheeks. Well, and that's one of the things when you work in, I mean, sure, it's other offices too, but when you work in the mayor's office, and I've had other people who've worked in different administrations say, you know, I drive past this or I visit X and real and remember how much I was involved. For me, it's getting the alley paved behind the McGinley's Golden Ace on the east side that doesn't quite compare to bringing an NFL team here. We all know better than that. (laughs) (laughs) I got boots on. What was it then like you were involved with the building of Lucas, what became Lucas Oil Stadium? What was it like for you when you saw the RCA dome being torn down? Broke my heart. You know, that was a great building. You know, we, people forget that we built that on the cheap. We, interest rates at that time were 13.5%. And so that limited the amount of money. It's built 82, 83, 84-ish. Yes. Cost about 60, 65, 70 million maybe. The the number they used, that involved an expansion of the convention center as well as the Hoosier Dome. The Hoosier Dome, part of it was about 55 million. And then the rest was the expansion of the convention center. But it was, um, well, it just a lot of memories. Do you have a piece of it somewhere? A seat or a part of the roof? or? Well, for a long time, I had a, had a seat. But I finally gave that up when we downsized our <laughs> home and moved into a smaller place. Uh, but you are right. I mean, you, you take... You can remember things where you may your contribution may have been major or minor, but it's because of a lot of people getting together and believing deeply on what it's going to take to move our community forward. Uh, and I was very fortunate. I, I had an opportunity to play a role for Bill Hunnett in causing that to happen. I've said this before. It's actually one of the reasons why I wanted Louis Mayhern and John Mutz to come on the podcast, Leaders and Legends podcast. They were wonderful. Uh, is because a lot of people just don't know what John Mutz did for this city. And I'll pick him out because he obviously became lieutenant governor. But I also have thought that one of the most underrated contributors to the growth of Indianapolis is a fellow named Jim Dora Sr. How well did you know him? 
And what do you think his main contributions were to that critical period in the 80s and 90s as Indianapolis continued to mature? Well, Jim Dorr was a friend. Uh, in fact, where we lived before we downsized and moved into our condo here uh, was caused by my wife seeing his seeing the house that we ended up buying on the west side of Eagle Creek, just a couple doors down from Jim Dora. Uh, Jim played a critical role on the CIB. He was the communicator to the rest of the hotel ind- industry because we were we really wanted to build a first class convention convention tourism business. And uh, Jim was the guy who carried the laboring ore and in, in getting the hotel industry in support of raising taxes on them in order to accomplish this objective. Um, and so it was a sad day when he, a very sad day when we lost Jim. He gave me more money for college through his and his wife's scholarship than anybody except Uncle Sam. And he did it in a very quiet way. Most people did not know that, that he was supporting a scholarship Absolutely. at Purdue. Absolutely. He didn't, he didn't want, I didn't know it and I knew him well. You mentioned, and these, these folks are obviously much, much better known, but you mentioned uh, the Simons a few minutes ago. If the Simons don't buy the Pacers in, I think it's 83, 82, 83, 84, that time period. Thank you. Are they still here? Do you wonder? Do you think the Pacers go someplace else through some other purchase of another billionaire, millionaire? But the Simons stepping up years after the telethon to make sure that the Pacers are here. Well, if if they hadn't done it, Indianapolis would never have gotten the Colts. There's no question in my mind. Um, we're very fortunate that Herb Simon, many people had approached her, Herb and Mel Simon, asking them to do it, and they always declined. Uh, the, the Pacers were on their way to Sacramento. Guy was buying the franchise and really? go, going to move it. Made no bones about it. It's the Kansas, Sacramento now is the Kansas City franchise, yeah. and he ended up buying that one instead of the Pacers. But Ted Bohm, Jim Morris, and myself went to be with P- Herbie. And we said, you got, and Bill Hudnut, and he said, you got to do it, Herb. And bless his heart, he said, I'll talk to Mel. And he talked to Mel, and the family stepped forward. Had they not done that, Indianapolis would be, would have been a very, would be a very different place today. In general, when you hear someone be critical of, giving money to sports teams and why do we do all this when there are other critical needs and, and pressing problems facing the city when the overall sort of sports tourism convention strategy kind of started by Luger, of course, but really given turbocharged by mayor Hudnut. When people criticize that, what's your response rebuttal? It's a question of spending a buck now that disappears versus spending a buck that creates a future. Uh, looking at the s- sports as a sp- athletic event is the wrong way, I think, to look at it for Indianapolis. What we were looking for is what are the economic engines that will drive this community? And one of those engines are 
people are businesses that uh, their executives were elsewhere, but they were uh, had a plant here, and we needed to somehow get on the radar screen of those important decision makers who were making decisions about whether their plant was going to close or or expand, and sports is a way of doing that. You, um, the conversations we have in our community on Monday morning after a Colts game or after sure. a Pacer playoff uh, give you a, an opportunity to connect with a bigger strategy we had, which was the strategy of using sports for economic development. One of the best stories we've heard so far on the Leaders and Legends podcast, and we're here with David Frick, former deputy mayor for Bill Hudnut is one told by Allison Melangdon, which I'm going to try to get through without being weepy because I haven't been able to do it yet. Uh, Allison Melangdon was CEO of the Super Bowl committee and uh, left Super Bowl head co- headquarters one night uh, while the Super Bowl, Super Bowl Village was activated and all that uh, uh, terrific attendance of people on Capitol and on Georgia Street. She goes, I just wanted to walk. I'd worked all day, worked all night. I just kind of wanted to walk and see what people were doing and talking about. So she walked from the headquarters, which was only about a block away, and then gets to Georgia Street. And then she sees in the distance this tall fella. And she continues to walk toward this man. She realizes it's Bill Hudnut. And as she goes up to talk to him, to say hello, she noticed Mayor Hudnut's crying in the middle of all this activity. What do you think he was thinking as the tears were running down his cheek during the Super Bowl Village experience? Oh, I, I think Bill was being reflective of the strategy that was adopted by the community and how that strategy finally played out and worked in the most prestigious way possible in having a Super Bowl, and how that community, this community embraced, as it does all good sporting events, embraced that experience. And he was telling himself, we got it done. And I, I believe that's what he was saying. In 34 years, Indianapolis went from having to host a telethon to save an NBA franchise to hosting a Super Bowl that completely redefined the experience for the entire league, therefore the entire country. Is that Bill Hudnut's legacy? Along with Mayor Peterson, along with Mayor Goldsmith, along with Mayor Ballard and all the attendees, all the civic leaders and community leaders coming together. Is that the culmination for you or is there more to come? Well, it was a good run. Today, things are just different. I'm not sure today you could have pulled off the things that we pulled off because there was a lot of risk taking associated with what Bill Hudnut and a lot of community leadership, both in the public sectors and the private sectors. Uh, could pull off. I don't know that it could be done today. You know, you the, the partisanship that has invaded the political arena makes it almost impossible to do what we did. I mean, Bill, think about it. Bill Crawford, one of the leading African-American 
leaders in this community, Louis Mayhern, Dem- prominent Democrat, carried the legislation to build the Hoosier Dome. Well, you wouldn't, people wouldn't do that today. They just, Republicans and Democrats can't, can't agree upon anything. And you attack your, your, as opposed to working with people. So it was a great era. We got a lot done. Uh, I wish well the decision makers because I think it's going to be tough to continue to do it. I'd be, we're getting ready to uh, ask you the five questions that we finish every podcast with for all of our subjects. I want to mention one more name, which we w- would be remiss in not mentioning. And that's P.E. McAllister. His impact on this city. How would you describe it? Well, P was just so highly thought of in the business community and the governmental community. He was close to Dick Luger. Dick Luger gives him so much credit uh, for what he's for what he P has accomplished in both the business world as well as the governmental world. Uh, he's one of Bill Hunt's closest advisors. They'd known each other for a number of years, and he clearly because he's he never wanted the attention. So many people get in public life and want a lot of attention. He didn't. He was very quiet. And his leadership is a testament of how being, not trying to take all the credit, but sharing the credit works and makes for a better place. And I wish he would be around for another hundred as he's a hundred years <laughs> down. Amen to that. Leaders and legends, we ask the same five questions of every guest. So if you're ready. I'm ready. What was the first job you had? Working on my grandparents' farm, uh, shoveling crap. (laughs) (laughs) In Northeast Indiana? Yes. You know, there's something unique that we've lost in America, and that is the good old family farm. I mean, it's all gone. And uh, you sure grow up quickly when you have to get up at five in the morning and start your chores. And you can't take go away and for two days because the daggone cows need milking twice a day. <laughs> so I think that that was my first family job. Uh, my first summer job was one working for a consultant analyzing the infrastructure here in Indiana. What was your first concert? Not one your parents dragged you to, but one you footed the bill for. Oh, my gosh. Um, We were never, I never had enough money to go to concerts. (laughs) I I, Probably down at IU, there was some concert. Greg Ballard's first concert was at IU, uh, Sly and the Family Stone. Got me. I couldn't. <laughs> Did you like music? Do a lot of concerts when you were an adult? You and your wife? No, we we really we really haven't. We enjoy the symphony. Uh, we we go both a either the pops version or the classical version. We do it during the day. They've got a nice day program, but that's we we don't follow. At least I don't. Well, neither one of us really have much interest in in following music. Other than that. If you could recommend one book to anyone, which book would you recommend? 
There's so many great ones. I'm not sure I I could answer that one book. History one. book? It would be something in history. Do you have a particular figure who with whom you would more closely well, identify? I've, I've read a lot of, about Lincoln. He's how he kept our country together. I wish we had him around again. So it would have been one of the series or one of the books probably of involving Abraham Lincoln. If you could witness any event in history, which event would you choose? Be there, see it happen, live. I think I would have enjoyed watching the Yorktown battle, how it unfolded. So October 19th, 1781, Washington and the French take on the British. In Trapped the on the peninsula, the British. And they, and they, how they led up to the fact of being able to con, confront them on terms favorable to the Americans. It would have been fun to sit in the strategy meetings. And, and it was interesting, uh, there was a famous naval battle right before the surrender called the Battle of the Capes, where the French defeated the British, and then the British can't rescue Cornwallis. Um how deferential the French general was to Washington, even though, you know, he had all the experience and the French had the money, but he let Washington do his thing. Well, you clearly have read more than I have, but the thing that I remember most is the, the talent that from Europe, some, some leading people in Europe had in coming over and Pulaski is a good example of coming over and helping us in the battle and, how Franklin ever convinced the French to come help us. I... <laughs> There's a great book. It's called The The Great Improvisation by Stacy Schiff. It's all about what you just said. Franklin convincing the Europeans to help us. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone in the world right now living for a couple hours just to talk or reminisce, whom would you choose? I'm tempted to think in terms of historical figures or religious persons, religious people. But I, given such short time we have on this planet and the importance of family, I just like to be surrounded by my grandkids and my wife and my two kids um, and just spend two wonderful hours with them. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, uh, presented by Veteran Strategies and sponsored by the Girl Scouts of Indiana. My name is Robert Vane, and we have been honored, honored to spend the last hour with David Frick. Uh, it's easy to list mayors and senators and governors and representatives as people who've made an impact on this city, but on the Mount Rushmore of people who have changed Indianapolis, David Frick's face is right there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Mm-hmm.